year, grad student. I can't believe I'm actually saying this, but I have announcements before today's episode starts. You've been asking, and the time is finally here. Sort of. So, turns out, converting podcast episodes into transcripts is either expensive, like $20 an episode, or it takes hours out of my week and life that I simply just don't have as a PhD student. So, as a temporary fix until I can afford a paid transcript service, Dear Grad Student is now available on YouTube, which provides automated closed captioning. So, if you or somebody that you know benefits from podcast transcript options, please let them know that you can now find Dear Grad Student on YouTube. Also, I'm happy to say I've officially partnered with Instacart. Instacart is a grocery delivery service that delivers your groceries in as fast as one hour. Your food is hand-selected by shoppers at the store, and Instacart even highlights deals and suggestions for your new and old food favorites. Plus, this is a great no-contact option during the pandemic, which protects you and those around you. You know, like my Nana, who still shops in store every week, multiple times a week. So please use Instacart not only for your own convenience, but for my Nana and for all the other Nanas that insist on in-person grocery shopping. If you haven't used Instacart before, you can save the Nanas of the world by clicking the link in the show notes or description and get free delivery on your first order over $35. Anyways, today's episode is about science communication, or SCICOM, grieving in grad school, and being not cool with fourth-year health psychology PhD student Ryan Lynn Brown. Hello listeners, welcome back to Dear Grad Student, the podcast where grad students can come together to celebrate, commiserate, and support one another through this long and difficult journey. I'm Alana, I'm a fourth-year doctoral student and your host, and I'm joined today by a fourth-year doctoral student studying the mechanisms of psychological stress in close relationships and subsequent health outcomes, and the talent of Ryan Science on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Ryan Lynn Brown, welcome to the podcast. Hello, welcome. I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, I'm so excited. You know, I was actually thinking about how this episode came to be. And you were someone that I feel like I like came out to about the podcast before it existed (laughs) because you basically sent me like the sweetest DM of my life uh, in regard to me flailing around with R and you were like, any, I have resources, just let me know. I'm still flailing. Um, But we just had this like realization, like we do the same research. We know each other's mentors. We go to the same conferences and we've never met each other. And I was like, oh wait, this is amazing. And then I saw your Psycom like TikToks and I was like, okay, so I need her on my show. Like this hasn't been launched, but I need to do this. No, this is so incredible. I It's been so much fun to get to know you and your research because our research interests are so close. And like we were talking about before the show, like we don't actually get to know that many people in our field as early career researchers, like especially as really early career researchers. Yeah, I know. Like, so are we early? I feel like we're like pre-pubescent. Uh, like, yeah. I, I think I joked in a previous episode that like I used to call myself a fetus. I still do sometimes, although I do think I've technically graduated from fetus status. But in terms of my whole career, I'm still a fetus. So. Yeah, exactly. I agree. I feel that way all the time. (laughs) Yeah. And so before we get started, you have a lot of places that you exist on social media. And right here at the beginning, I just want to plug those really quick so that people can follow you and and maybe look along at some of your TikToks or things Mm -hmm. you post on YouTube or Instagram while we're talking to get a sense of like, what the heck we're talking about. Um, And so I've already mentioned your SciComm or your science communication accounts. And those are just Ryan's science, all one word, right? 
Yep. Do you have any other places that people can find you if they want to connect with you, like just you accounts or anything like that? Yeah, on Twitter, I'm at Ryan Lynn Brown. So R-Y-A-N-L-I-N-N-B-R-O-W-N. Perfect. So everyone go ahead and give her a follow. And let's just start with what the heck we're talking about. And I'm jumping into this so early because Ryan and I spent like 30 minutes before we started recording, maybe more, maybe like 40 minutes yeah. being like, oh my God, we have so many things in common. Oh my God, we're the same person. Oh my God, did you know about that? And so I'm, we're going to jump right in to make room for all of the tangential conversations I know are going to pop up. So let's talk about like, what the heck is SCICOM or science communication? Like, what is your definition of it? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, for me, the sort of motivation behind it is in my program, we don't have a lot of teaching options. And so just getting practice, like actually talking about the research that I'm doing and what we learn in classes, right? I just want to have a place to put all of that and know that I can come back to it when in like 10 years, I'm teaching my own courses and things like that. But then also knowing that there are a lot of people struggling right now with teaching online courses. So having a place where if there are psychology papers that you want to have like the authors going through them or just want to know that they've been sort of vetted by psychology PhD students that you can check out that YouTube and be able to see these videos and use them in your classes and have that as a resource. So to me, it's about science communication is about making more resources for the people who are educators and then also creating just a like fun, curious environment, right? For people who are maybe slightly interested or just have stumbled on that channel or on that content, right? Because to me, like all of it is so exciting and fun and we lose like the curiosity piece of it a lot of the time. So interacting with undergrads is my favorite part of grad school a lot of the time because it, yeah, because it just like reminds you the most fun parts of what you study and getting excited and like actually being able to teach that and convey how freaking cool our research is, is the best part for me. Yeah. Right. And it's like, I love that you pointed out a couple of things there. Like first off being a resource for people who are teaching right now and also for undergrads. Like I remember, you know, being an undergrad and learning about some of these things for the first time. And it was like a world opened up to me. And I'm not saying that like, (laughs) I'm not saying that I'm making that happen for other people, but being (laughs) there to witness or being a part of like a whole world of like, oh my God, this is a thing for people is so cool to be a part of. I totally agree. I I talk about this on a previous episode about instructor of record, like mentoring undergrads or just being a part of that process is one of the best parts of this for sure. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, there are some studies that there's some studies that I just come back to every time to be like, this is so freaking cool. And the fact that this kind of science exists, like how could you not want to go into this? How could you not want to fund this? How could you not want to study this? So putting those options out there for undergrads, because especially like the kind of research that you and I do, a lot of people don't know that it even exists. And I definitely didn't before I met my advisor and before I saw the research that was being done. We just have this idea that like stress is bad, right? But we don't necessarily all know like how it's actually affecting us or the extent to which it is affecting us. And especially thinking about about coronavirus and things like that and just like our understanding of public health as a world. Yeah, I actually saw something related to our area of research and coronavirus um, in the New York Times. And it was talking about like things that are, I'm going to definitely butcher this, but I'm going to put this in the description. But it was basically like things that are weakening our immune system that are kind of giving power to coronavirus to do even more damage, right? So like stress is bad for us, but also there's ways that stress can help the body become resilient. Like there's so much about like what the heck stress is, how it affects us. And so Ryan and I both do things with sort of like the interactions between like psychological things, whether it be emotion regulation and thought regulation, which is things that I do, or things with like personal relationships. I know you do stuff with grief as well and how that affects the immune system. So there's a whole world over here. Not everyone knows about it, but 
science communication, and I'm just going to call it SciComm going forward because that's a really long word that I'm going to stumble over if I don't, but SciComm is really important. And I think in part, in my opinion, at least, we're seeing that unfold as a failure on the part of the federal government to communicate accurate, concise, and helpful SciComm related to the pandemic. And this is just my opinion. Feel free to disagree with me, listeners or Ryan. But this is why it's so key, right? When we think about there are some countries who have done a little bit better with response. And in large part, if you're able to get a country of people together to understand why and the actions they need to take and why those actions are necessary, like that is successful SciComm. So it goes from as, as small as like little old us as grad students just trying to get the word out about the immune system and stress to, you know, up at the, the government level. So yeah, it just seems hugely important, but it's hard to do. Absolutely. And I want to plug a couple of accounts on Instagram. I'm not going to be able to think of them right this second. So maybe we can add it back in or something later on. But there are a couple of accounts on Instagram that I've been following that have been so key for me, just understanding what what new research is coming out. Like I, I think I've been, I've sort of removed myself from a lot of the coronavirus research and any, I just, I, I honestly feel overwhelmed by all of it. And it's me too. kind of stressful. And so I've been relying heavily on psychometers on Instagram who are going through all of that work for us, right? And so just knowing that, yeah, like what you're saying, if we don't have all of the information coming from the top, then we have to sort of do this patchwork system of scientists trying to communicate what they know. So for me, I'm not I'm not shifting into hardcore coronavirus stuff because that's not what I know really. Mm-hmm. Right now, it, it, there is sort of a balance between, I want to talk about what is most likely to be influential right now, but also balancing like your expertise and things like that. So I think using my account to share what like what I know, but then amplify the people who I, I can tell know what they're talking about, right on those subjects. Yeah, well, I can definitely link those in the description. If you think of them later, let me know. Let's get more people following science communication accounts. God, I did it even though I said I wasn't going to get more people following SciComm accounts. But it's really it's kind of like a grassroots kind of movement where, you know, we write these journal articles that now as a fourth year, I'm just getting comfortable regularly reading, where it's not taking me two hours to digest five pages. And so we can't expect people who aren't throwing their life into doing this to be able to be like, oh, yeah, let me just go read these 200 pages on this thing I'm interested in. Like, that is not reasonable for a well, it might be reasonable for a PhD student, but like, it's not really reasonable for anyone who's not in that exact area doing that exact thing. And sometimes people in those areas don't even read the papers very often. They've read it once and that's all they needed to know. So it's so important that there are people out there who are making this digestible for like the rest of the world, because who's reading these other than us, you know? Right. And that, I mean, that again, I I didn't mention this at the beginning, but that, that again is sort of a huge motivator of like, we're putting all of this work into journal articles and things like that. And just how many people are going to read it? Are people going to read it in, in time for the information to be relevant? Because a lot of what we do is biological, the information will probably be relevant later, but why why wait kind of an idea? And there's sort of an interesting, I, I mean, as as like a young graduate student, middle-aged graduate student, I don't know what, yeah, what where we fall exactly, but the, I definitely feel intense imposter syndrome with all of it, right? But I think just knowing that well, I'm going to put some stuff out there. And if I make a mistake, like I can fix that, update the information and have good information out there. So for me, it's been a big struggle of balancing. Well, I don't really feel like I know what I'm talking about, but 
I do mm-hmm. figuring out how to convey that and then also be ready to know like, well, I might get feedback that the way I explained that isn't actually correct. And I'm very prepared to then edit that and update it. So I think there's sort of like an ego level to it. So for example, one video that I'm doing is about one of my papers that I literally did in a stats class with some of my good friends. Wow. So I'm I'm like, I'm going to make a video about this because I want to explain it. And like, no one's going to read it otherwise. So why not like talk about it? Right. But at the same time, then I'm like, am I opening myself up to all this criticism from older professors? and everything else, right? So I'm convincing myself, right? It's better science to do that and get that feedback now than to have a paper that's floating around. And again, there's no reason for me to think that the paper should get bad feedback, but just the idea that the more eyes on it, the more potentially critical eyes on it, right? I mean, that's open science, right? Like exactly. that's what this whole yeah, like open exactly. science movement is. And I love that you actually talked about like, it's it's really scary to do this. Like I actually was having this reaction on Twitter this week. I've recently followed a ton of more accounts. Like as I'm getting followers, like I hit a thousand followers this week, which was like shocking. I don't know where all of you are coming from, but thank you for coming along on this ride that I'm following a bunch of people. And I'm like, wow, they're really good at talking about what they do or even things that they don't do that they're just like seeing around. Like they'll see a thread of a paper and they're in, you know, however many characters Twitter gives you is able to be like, oh, check out this paper by so-and-so that talks about this. I'm like, do you just do that? Like, can you just come up with that? I mean, for me, I want to be one of those people who reads a thread and I'm like, this is what they talked about, but I can't always do that. And I don't mean like the person who wrote the thread is bad. I mean more that it's and maybe it's a part of just being in grad school. I'm taking in so much information at all time that I'm I'm like really slow in the area of like processing that in my mind and spinning it back out. Mm-hmm. I also wonder if I have like a little bit of undiagnosed ADHD in there, but I have a really hard time like concisely conceptualizing and spitting out things that I have taken in or like read or digested. So it's really scary. Like I very much feel like I'm going to be wrong. And I really like that you said like you kind of know you're going to be wrong. Like we are fourth year grad students. Yeah, there's no expectation that we could possibly do everything right. But just knowing that you're going through the steps to verify it as well as you possibly can, right? And then put it out and be open to criticism. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's huge. And I don't know, part of me is like, well, Ryan says that it's okay to be wrong. Like, I don't know, maybe this week I'll like dabble in SciComm. But I I feel like I, I don't even have that many you know, I retweet a lot of things and I'm like, this is great. But I really stop myself from tweeting too many original things because I'm like, what if I get like shit on Twitter from it? I really don't want to do that. And and then it's like, you know what? I probably should knowing that I'm going to get some, but it's still valuable science. It's still important for the field to do that. I mean, I've only had, you know, a paper or two come out, but there are things that I'm involved with or there are things that I see that like I could probably do a thread on that I don't because it's scary. Definitely that it's super vulnerable. And I think I go through like sort of every week that same process of, oh my gosh, am I going to post things on Twitter this week? Like, am I going to put myself out there this week? And I want people to ask me questions and have comments and do all of these things, but I really want them to be genuine. And I don't want to deal with people who are, are like not genuinely wanting to engage about the science part of it. I don't want to deal with the like the flirty YouTube comments or the sort of just like more challenging posts on Twitter, right? Just questioning credibility or things like that. Yeah, right? like who uh, are you as a fourth year or like, oh, you're just a grad student. Like, why do you have an opinion on this? Like, that's what I'm because I basically like, uh, I don't have any right. Thank you for pointing that out. We already know it. Like, I have nothing. I mean, I have a master's degree, but I got that on the way to the PhD. And unfortunately, it feels kind of small for for me. It's not a small thing. (laughs) You know, I didn't go to my master's graduation or anything. Like, it was like a pat on the back. Good job. Now keep on going like it. Well, and if that's not academia, I mean, again, (laughs) I I think that honestly, doing psychon stuff is really nice to get some validation, right? Just to know, like, 
hey, I'm putting something out there that people can use now. And that it's not like it has to go through a 10 month process of reviewing. And I mean, 10 months if you're lucky, right? I was like, oh, your stuff takes 10 months. (laughs) (laughs) Jokes. Just, yeah. So it's like, it's, it's scary because it's quicker feedback, right? You don't have that peer review process to sort of have as a backup of like, I know all these eyes were on it before, but because of that, you can get the information out to people so much faster. Yeah. And it's so public, right? Like if you publish a paper and somebody disagrees, like they'll have to disagree a ton to like post a commentary on it. Like maybe you'll get an email if somebody's really feeling feeling fired up. But if you post something to social media that someone doesn't disagree with, you'll know about it real quick. You'll know about it right away. You'll know their face. They'll know your face. If you have anything else plugged, like they'll know that I have a podcast. Like you know, we're, and it's so weird because doing this podcast, I'm, it's, I wonder like, why is this less scary to me than sharing science? I don't know. It's more personal, but science is scarier to share. I'm like so scared of being wrong. Whereas I'm like, I'm not going to be wrong about myself. So. Yeah. And I think just the perpetual feeling of, am I like good enough to be the one saying this? Am I smart enough to be the one saying this? And that is the like internal voice that I battle against. And also after posting, right. It's just like, why do you think you should be doing this? Right. So I, I, I mean, really any comment that I've ever gotten, like that's been sort of negative. I, and also not a lot on TikTok, but some just more of the, like, I want to explain to you things on TikTok, but it, it's just so funny because you're like, all of these things have come through my mind already, you know? And usually you're just like, someone is just parroting back like the negative things that you say to yourself. Oh, like kind like, of well, actually. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and so anyway, I've, I've been taking, I don't know if this approach is good or not, but I'm, I will always reply to like genuine questions, comments, anything. Like I want to give all of the information possible and I have no qualms, like not engaging with people who don't seem genuine or, and so I, I don't know how to balance that. And that's one thing that being like new to all of it, again, there's a lot that I don't necessarily know, but that's one line in the sand that I'm just early on drawing for myself because it's just protecting your time too. It's a lot of time that we're putting into our various projects and things, right? And knowing that like we also have to finish our PhD at the same time, yeah. right? Figuring out what we're willing to do and not. Yeah. Okay. And I think that that's, you know, I talk a lot about healthy boundaries. I feel like that's a really healthy boundary, right? There's a difference between someone who is genuinely like, hey, I think that this thing is wrong. I just like kind of either A, wanted to like discussion, you know, why did you say this instead of that would be super different than someone being like, well, actually, this is incorrect. <laughs> and just like leaving it at that, not really giving any helpful feedback about why, like, I think that you and I are similar and I'm super open to being wrong. I actually assume that I'm wrong about 95% of the time. And then by the time things come out into the public, it, it flips to being about right about 95% of the time. But as a grad student, half of my job is being wrong. And if I am not wrong often enough, I'm probably not growing enough or I'm probably not looking, you know, I'm avoiding the areas in which I need to grow. And that's a really hard thing about grad school is you have to be wrong kind of all the time. And I think that's academia in general. I'm getting really used to being wrong. And for whatever reason, the areas of like my research or like my experience, it's just a little more personal. So I think that's a healthy boundary to set. Like we're doing the best we can. And like, that's all we can do. And I am curious though, because I have never taken a class in how to communicate science. Have Where did I you learn to do this? I've done nothing. I This is very much, uh, I just wanted to do it. I started it after my dad died and I was just sort of trying to find like what things like sort of bring me joy. Right. And my dad and I had a special connection around science and just wanting to learn and explore and just understand things. 
So for me, I, I took time off after he died. And in that time, like I was reading a lot and doing miscellaneous things, but just remembering like the things that get me excited in a day are totally science and learning and understanding these things. So that's, that's sort of when in that time off, I started playing with the idea of being able to do something like this. So that's totally the motivation for me is just remembering the studies that spark excitement for me and make me continue to want to do my PhD and continue in academia and all of that and sort of feel closer to my dad at the same time because yeah. it's that, you know, that just that special connection of trying to learn and share with the people around you or, you know, like virtually. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like, I think that that is beautiful. I think that this is a good reminder of a couple things. First, scientists are human. You know, I think that hopefully at least more than likely in our generation of scientists, we have a personal connection to what we're doing. And I think mm -hmm. especially, and I actually would love to be proved wrong with the statement I'm about to say, but especially in psychology, there are often very personal reasons that we are connected to studying people. Mm -hmm. um, and that has been my experience of like, I didn't randomly land on stress in the immune system. I mean, I kind of did, but there was a reason it clicked for me above other areas of psychology. And so, you know, I, I love what you've said about it doesn't just get you excited as an interest area, but it actually is connecting you to a very personal experience and, and reminding you why your PhD is bigger than just some letters you get to put after your name in a career path. And for some people, their PhD is just that. It's an interest and they get a career path and that's okay too. But I love that's this it. idea of like, let's put a little bit more humanity back into the PhD. Like it's okay. It's okay that you have a personal connection. You know, you don't have to take yeah. your humanity out of it. And I appreciate that you also said that it's very much okay to not have like be spending your free time on this kind of stuff because it is. And just because it's something that I enjoy, it's not like that has to be for everyone. And it's not like that should be a requirement within PhD programs. I think I came into grad school being like, I'm super passionate about this and this is what's going to make me a good scientist. And now I'm like, well, you don't have to be so passionate that it takes over your life and you don't have healthy boundaries, right? So that's been a big area for me is just finding those boundaries because I do like what I do a lot. I love science and I love, like, I love all of it, right? And so figuring out those boundaries is sometimes difficult, but just transitioning them then to the SciComm stuff as well has been helpful. Yeah. I mean, as we're talking, I'm like, I wonder in what areas I could dabble. Like you had mentioned that there were a couple like papers here or there that really got you. And I can think of those, you know, I took a class on psychoneuroimmunology in my undergrad that totally changed my life. And I remember those papers. And it, like, one of them was written by the person I'm now working with. So like, that was a really great outcome. But I remember those papers, I could talk about those papers for a long time, probably equally, if not more than I can talk about the like the thesis that I did, because they just stick with you. The reasons why we're in this stick with you. And so I feel like this is such an area of weakness for me. What advice do you have for somebody who wants to improve their psychom skills? Like, how do I get better? Help me. <laughs> I watched a lot of psychomers. I mean, I just, I started following a lot of people on Instagram. I, like I said, I really, it started for me seeing how much misinformation was out there, seeing amazing people on Instagram doing really important work, especially around coronavirus stuff. And then wanting personally to have that connection in some way and be able to share my research and like the research that is exciting. So I think following good psychomers is the best advice I have. I am not good at like any of the like optimization stuff. I don't know about that. My videos don't get that many views at this point. I mean, you know, they're, they're good, but I'm not doing any of the like hot tips, like like that. I think for me, it's just been trying to make sure that each video is like quality enough that I would want to show it in a class kind of a thing. So regularly 
posting something and I, and I spent a couple of months before I ever posted anything really messing with the lighting and sound and everything else around that. Same. Yeah. Because it's all new, right? I'm, I'm not, I don't do any of this in my program. And and again, that's a huge part of why I wanted to, because like you said, I, I didn't have any training in communicating my research beyond the narrow silos of sort of our conferences. Right. So for me, it's all practice. And that, that is very scary to have be public because I really do think of it as I'm practicing teaching because I, want to be a professor one day and have this stuff right but yeah I'm just putting it out there for anyone to comment yeah. on it well. well and like that's the thing too like I'm waiting for the person to be like you're really bad at podcasting to which I'll respond thank you I learned on YouTube and messed around in my closet for a few months and that's how I learned so that's a yeah. fine opinion to have like I don't have a sound editor I don't have an audio person like I have a seven-year-old mic that I have a like two dollar pop filter on and my door has a blanket on it like that is my set up like I will say I think I reached out to you early on because I was really nervous about starting it and just wanting to know like would a couple of people be able to look over things because I was just I mean I was nervous to tell my friends I was nervous to tell anyone that I was doing it right so nervous to tell my advisor or like ask for him I I did end up asking for his feedback but the the terror and the weeks of like I'm so glad you brought this up we talked about this before we started recording (laughs) every once in a while I forget that people know about the podcast because for so long it was like the secret thing that I was doing that like my boyfriend who I live with knew about and like my mom knew and my mom's like the first follower on everything like I just started the Instagram account this week and I had like one follower and it was like my mom thanks mom number one fan um that like that's the only people that knew about stuff and slowly you know as I got different people I was interviewing and and things like that and then I officially launched and now people know about it people in my program professors know about it you know people will mention little things like oh I heard your episode and I I just start like melting and sinking like oh that's right you know about that like Of course, I'm so happy people do. And I'm like, actually really proud of what this is turning into. And I'm super excited. This is the best hobby I've ever had. But it's still like horrifying. Like I'm still like, oh, this like very important person, either career wise for me or whatever, knows about this. And I was actually reflecting on how I told my mentor because we were in lab meeting on Zoom and two of my lab mates had been in episodes with me at this point and I hadn't launched. And we were just talking about podcasts in, in lab because we had been listening to podcasts instead of papers over the summer, which was a super fun way to like learn about science and learn about stats and different things and a good way to do it in summer. And so she just yeah. asked everyone like, what podcast are you guys listening to? And everyone was kind of silent and I was just getting these text messages from Anita and Stephanie who I've had on the pod. And they're like, you gotta tell her like, this this is the perfect time, like blah, blah, blah. So like in front of our whole lab, like collaborators, undergrads, like all the grad students, I was like, I'm, I'm making a, a podcast and it's called Dear Grad Student, is that okay? <laughs> and she was like, this is awesome. What's it called? Where can I find it? So luckily my mentor was very supportive, but I still get horrified for whatever reason, talking about the podcast. Like, it's still scary. Why is it scary? I don't know, but same exact. My advisor has also been very supportive and that that was kind of a pleasant... I mean, not that I thought that he wouldn't be supportive, but I, I've been like I've been very pleased with like how supportive he's been and it's... which is very nice, but also just terrifying. Yeah, it's so... And it's like, it was scary, I think, for both of us where this is... It's not just personal. Like, my mm-hmm. podcast is a grad student podcast. So... It really blends my personal and professional life. And I was really scared about that. Similar to how, like, you're very much just your 25-year-old self in these TikTok videos communicating science. 
I was really worried that it was going to be looked down upon that like I'm my normal weird self, even though I'm mm-hmm. talking about these like professional things. I'm sure there are people who find me very annoying and non-professional. Yeah. And my whole thing is that I just can't put on a face all the time. Not that I do, but you know what I mean? Like we all kind of suck in and we're like, okay, I'm professional now. And I change my voice. Like I can't do that all the time. And I wanted to make a place where it was okay. And I just, I'm curious for you, was it hard to blend that like personal and professional persona a little bit to be a relatable person talking about science? So my, my thing is that I think I've tried really hard in my personal and professional life in grad school to be a lot more open in general about my personal life because so my dad was sick with COPD for a long time. And so we were family caregivers. Like my mom was a heavy spousal caregiving for the last seven years, probably 10 years of caregiving for sure. And so I didn't talk about that in undergrad that much. I was just sort of like, I was just like knowing my dad was about to die for a really long time and not talking about it and just sort of like dressed but not talking about it. Right. So once I came into grad school and especially because we sort of study grief and loss and effects on the immune system and things like that. I, I was really open with my advisor. Like, I think my dad's probably going to die while I'm in grad school. And that's going to be one of the biggest stressors, like biggest things to happen in my entire life. Right. So for me, it was really important to be upfront with him. And then also just in my classes, just knowing that that like something that magnitude was going to happen probably um, sort of changed how I approached grad school, I think, because I've been so excited about every person who like shows their humanity that I've just latched onto them and been like, let's do this together. Yeah, kind of I'm glad that we've latched and- onto each other. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, same, exactly. And and so I've been really lucky with people in my in my program. I mean, I've found the best friends in grad school that I've ever had in my entire life. So same. my grad school experience has been made by the fact that like the people around me let me be super open about my personal life and be a 25-year-old struggling scientist who's doing like all of these different things and just trying to figure out like who I am at the same time and dealing with personal stuff, right? So I, I think the transition for me really happened undergrad to grad school because I knew that something big and stressful was going to happen. And I had to prepare the people around me for like, I might be out of commission for a little bit and I don't know what this is going to look like. And I just want you to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm really glad that you shared that. I know from following online mostly that your father passed away over the summer. I know that you were grant writing starting your fourth year. Like it's a really crazy busy time and so I'm really glad that you were vulnerable and that you're actually saying that putting your humanity into your science and into your professional life has been a major goal for you and is so important to you and you know from my end like I admire you for it I like see you and I'm like you are strong and you are going to be someone who cares about the science because of what you've gone through while studying it and because it relates to kind of like what you were going through. Like you posted something on Twitter this week that was like, we're doing a study with people who are four months out of grief and I'm four months out of grief. And like, that was hard. I mean, like I, part of me can't quite imagine. It's intense. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that, all of that. Um, it, it's definitely been intense. And yeah, this, the paper I was working on when he died was sort of around grief symptoms and how they relate to stress and immune function later in bereavement. And so I took some time off and now it, it's just ending up when I'm actually working on it. It's the exact same time point as when we ran the participants themselves. So yeah, they were four months bereaved and I'm four months bereaved. And that's been an interesting experience. But thinking about grief itself in this time has been really interesting. And also just distinguishing between feelings of grief and depression, mm. something I've been thinking about a lot. And 
I mean, I don't think that intellectualizing any of it has actually helped that much, but it makes me feel better. And I feel like it has definitely helped my science just to be seeing what my mom is going through also. And of course, it's, you know, you have to make sure it's not biasing it because I think we do grief pretty hard mm-hmm. and not everyone does, right? So knowing that there's a lot of individual variation and in how people respond to events like this, but also just knowing how hard it can be and how hard it can be because you're also going through the rest of your life, yeah. right? It feels like time has stopped and it definitely feels like time has stopped because he died at the beginning of the pandemic. So the world continuing to move is sort of shocking. Absolutely. And and again, like I'll, I'll just reiterate, I just really appreciate your openness and and talking about probably one of the most difficult times. And I know that you're you're still going through it. And I mean, you now that we are like, oh, we're the same person, obviously you can reach out <laughs> at any time in, in ways that I can support you. And it reminds me a little bit of like sort of tangential here, but it, it kind of reminds me of like when applying to clinical psychology programs, because they kind of suggest the opposite where they'll be like, if you went through a major depressive episode and that was your interest in studying psychology, don't write about that. Like I, as a teenager, was diagnosed with PMDD, which is premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which kind of gives me like a mood disorder right around the top of my period every single month. And now it's well managed with medication. But that for me was a huge interest in like, actually part of why I latched on to psychoneuroimmunology was like hormonal fluctuations and my vulnerability and sensitivity to that are completely dictating my symptoms. Otherwise, I I have basically no uh, mental health struggles, which is kind of a strange reality, but that's true. That for me was an interest and I could not write about my period <laughs> applying to graduate school. And I talk about that now openly and I, and I don't mind doing so, but I, I appreciate that you are putting that humanity back in both in a professional and a personal way. Like I think in my view, like that makes you a better scientist and whatever way that you go, I think that your science will always have impact and meaning because of what it means to you. So I appreciate that you're open about it. And it, I don't know, like it kind of makes me excited to see what you do because I'm like, you're doing it for more reasons than just academic prestige or this is an interesting topic, which again is a totally fine reason to go into science. But I appreciate the humanity that you put back into science in your experience, even though I know it was, is painful and continues to be. Yeah, and I and I'm glad you talked about MDD and also those experiences before because I think I remember I didn't apply to clinical programs, but I remember hearing that advice and applying in general and definitely yeah. for clinical programs. And I mean, I hate that, but I don't I don't know if that's good advice, bad advice, whatever. Yeah. But as a person with mental health stuff, I I don't appreciate and I understand the idea that it it it's just screening people for mental disorders, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a gatekeeper. I talked about yeah. gatekeeping a lot in an episode that's not out yet. So by the time this comes out, people are going to be like, oh, she's talking about gatekeepers again. <laughs> but it kind of, it's a, it's a gatekeeper to say, we don't want anybody with mental health struggles. It's a gatekeeper for people with disabilities in other ways that we Absolutely. like haven't even mentioned, right? So it is a gatekeeper. And, and part of me gets it. Part of me understands that it's a science degree. So they want to hear about the science and they just want to hear that you have an interest. But part of me thinking about future times I might recruit students, I'm like, I would not be turned off by someone who's experienced something. I'd be like, they actually give an extra shit about this because they experienced it or this is meaningful to them. And so I think that their passion is going to last through the failures, through the difficulties, through the challenges, because this is meaningful to them. Right. I I think that's a really good point about like finding the meaning behind your research, because otherwise, if you're just jumping through different topics and things like that, it's easy for the productivity cycle to be so extreme and just not to know what am I really focusing on for my future. And not that I have that figured out at all, but I, but like I have questions that I'm interested in. Right. And like, I have sort of these bubbles that I'm interested in and 
yeah, passionate about for, for reasons very much before being in academia. Um, another thing I'll mention that just related to what you were saying of experiences way before any of it in high school, I had never had any kind of allergies, anything like that. And on a Saturday, I got hives on a Monday, I got hives. And then on a Tuesday, I got hives and my throat closed up. I had this extreme anaphylaxis response, right? And we never found out why. I got hives for eight months. My throat closed up twice. I was getting hives like every single day. And all I got was like a medical necklace that said idiopathic anaphylaxis. And now I think about stress and everything else. I'm not, I don't do allergy research, but I think it's fascinating. And I also don't think we know a lot about allergies in general, right? So basically I have no idea what happened to me for those eight months. And there are lots of explanations, you know, that led us down to homeopathic doctors and things like that. And now I have lots of different experiences with all of those I'm sure. different, like realms of how you can take care of things and how much you can want control over things that you don't know how to control. Right. So just to say, like, I think those experiences make us better scientists versus worse because no, having just know having that fear of like, my body is doing something and I don't understand why we all have that in certain ways, but I don't know if you felt this, but it helps me with anxiety and things like that, just to be able to talk back to it and say like, okay, well, there's something going on, whether it's hormonal or something else in my body, like like, this isn't happening because I actually feel this way at this moment. Or because there's like something wrong with me that I can't control it. Yeah. I mean, I talked about like, I I am a therapist. I am in clinical psych. And so I use skills all the time, whether successfully or not. But that idea of like, let's take a step back and like, let's look objectively about this, right? What's really going down? And then it's really easy to not put blame on yourself, not to be so judgmental. In some context, we call that skill, like checking the facts of the situation, like, what is really the fact of what's going on right now? And that can be so relieving to be like, you know, in, in my exact instance, it it is not wrong with me that, that my body is so vulnerable or sensitive, I should say, to these hormone shifts. This makes sense. You know, I know for me, it just passes with time. And so, you know, those couple of weeks or now it's down to days because, again, it's managed well with medication, even though it still pops up here and there. I'm like, all right, I'm going to get Chipotle tonight. I'm going to put on my matching PJs. I'm going to take a shower. I will have a cap by my side. You know, maybe I'll watch Harry Potter. I'll just like really binge watch it like Downton Abbey or something that I just is such a feel good for me. And I have to just give myself permission to do those things and be okay with it. My productivity slows down. I basically stop working those days if possible because nothing good comes out of the work I do on those days. It almost always has to be redone. It is helpful to not put blame on yourself. Yeah. And I would love to talk more about that too, because I I think the the biggest change for me from undergrad to grad school was realizing, oh, you can't get all the work done in one day. Like you have to stop. Right. Can you get like, it done in like a year? Because I I'm still no. all my work is still no, not done. I think I I I, was, I just did not procrastinate in undergrad. So oh. I was like, if I like I I know I don't know why. I think I just had a lot going on. So I was like, I can't actually procrastinate. This oh, time. I'm always but, yeah. That's a whole other story. <laughs> but just being being in grad school, realizing like you can't work all the time. And for me, setting the times that I will just not work and abiding by those mostly. <laughs> yeah, those healthy boundaries. We love to see them. Really, yeah, no, early in grad school, I, I worked nights, weekends all the time. And that was like sort of the expectation and everything else, right? And now I'm like, even if it, that's the expectation, that's not good for me. And that's not how I work best. So mornings are my best time. So that's when I'm going to work. Yeah, I, this is actually interesting as we're talking about it today, because 
I am for the first time, probably since the pandemic started or right around the time it did, I'm actually going to have to do schoolwork this weekend um, just because with the semester starting, I feel like first assignments are getting start to be due. So I just have a couple things that I chose research this week as a priority over classes, which I know I'm supposed to do. But for the first time, I have to work on weekends and I'm actually really happy with how foreign that feels. I'm like, wow, today's going to suck. But (laughs) but this is a great thing that it feels so foreign that I'm you know, yeah. taking this one time to do weekend work as a, a, a good reminder to do it during the week, Alana, goddamn, but also B, um, that like healthy boundaries, I think have been super successful for me. Yeah, absolutely. That's so good. And speaking of boundaries, just to tie it back to SciComm for a moment, I was mm-hmm. realizing how many platforms you're on doing SciComm. And like, I just joined Instagram this week for the podcast and I'm like, whoa, this is totally different than Twitter. How do you manage like what you share where and like, how did you get good at being like, this is good Instagram content or like, obviously TikTok only kind of does one thing, but like, yeah, I mean, that must be exhausting, even though it's like, again, exciting and passion, you know, passion based. It feels so exhausting though. I think Instagram is definitely my worst. I'm not making like special content for each platform necessarily yet. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, it's more about making sure that if anyone is on any of those channels, or on that platform and interested in this that they can find YouTube ultimately, right? I mean, it's all about like going back to the YouTube channel, but I think it's tough because each platform has its own sort of like rules and things that make content do better and everything else. And Instagram is really different than the other platforms, I think. So I look at people who are doing it well and I think that that's the best advice I have. I mean, that's basically what I did with podcasts. Right. Like I I think about the podcast I regularly listen to to like figure out what would make sense for the one I'm doing now. Right. Like, I mean, I'll admit Mm -hmm. this and I was about to say don't tell anyone, but we're recording this. So that's fine. But I um, I didn't listen to my first podcast until December of 2019. Ever. I never wow. listened to podcasts. You started a podcast like as soon as you heard one. No, like, well, it, no, well, <laughs> sort of, but not really. I, I just like could never get into it. I just like I was like, I don't get it. I'll binge watch YouTube videos. I'm very into YouTube, always have been very into just like Netflix, Hulu, whatever. I could just never latch onto podcasts. And then last year I ran a half marathon and I got so freaking tired of music. My goal for my time, even though I didn't hit it, was to listen to the Hamilton soundtrack and have that be my halftime. But I ran way slower than that. But I was like, I I can't listen to the same music. I don't want to listen to music. I don't know. Like I got so stuck. And then I found a podcast called Potterless and it was a guy reading the Harry Potter books for the first time. And I thought it was so funny that this like 20 year old guy or whatever it was, mid twenties had never read them. And I was like, oh, this is so enjoyable. And it kind of spiraled from there. For me, it was about listening to podcasts, see what I like. And it sounds like for you, it was what are people doing well? And then how can I translate it? And and we have different sort of home bases because for me, I feel like academic Twitter is kind of my home base. Like Twitter is what I'm using most for podcast stuff. And for you, it's YouTube. Um, and so the other platforms are trying to like draw people back to that YouTube account. I will say I'm most comfortable on Twitter. And I think that's that's where everything has come from for sure. Now now I just want to be able to put out the resources, right? And, and you were saying about YouTube. I never, I don't know what it was. I, I didn't really realize how amazing YouTube was as a child or like watch a lot of YouTube. So now, now I'm having the, experience that you're having with podcasts where I'm like, oh my gosh, there are all of these women on YouTube talking about science and I can learn from them. (laughs) And this is incredible. Okay. I do have a secret to tell. So when I was in middle school and high school, I had a YouTube channel and uh, it's basically like my legacy. 
And the reason I say that is, so like before I was interested in psychology, I wanted to go to like NYU for film. And mm-hmm. I was very, I was like known for like being the film person in high school. Like I messed around in classes and I just like made movies. And I had this YouTube channel that at the time had like 2000 subscribers back in like 2008, 2009, which was like not, I was like a YouTuber. Okay. I basically got bullied out of continuing doing it, which is one of those things that I always look back and I'm like, man, if I just kept going with my YouTube channel, I would be an influencer. I'd be living in LA, but like not really because I could never live that lifestyle. But part of the podcast is like reawakening that version of me. But I have like 150 videos that no one can find. They're all taken down. You can't find anything. But I have a ton, a ton of YouTube videos. I still follow a ton of YouTubers that I've just, I got so into it in high school. So for me, part of me wondered before the podcast, like before even I think you were on YouTube way back as a first or second year, I was like, could I be a grad school lifestyle vlogger? But then I was like, no. (laughs) Because I was just like, that's too much. (laughs) But like, it was a thing that I thought about because I was like, I love people sharing their experiences and having that feel normal, that people are just people. Absolutely. Well, I'm here. Okay. So here's what I'll say that I've been waiting to say all episodes is that I am not cool. Oh my God. Me neither. I'm the the weirdest. I'm just like the weirdest person. I'm I'm not a cool person. I'm like very excited about science things. And that's cool. That's, like that's cool here. My coolness. That's <laughs> cool here. Thank you. Thank you. That's cool in sections of my life yeah. too. But uh, let's just say I'm not like a traditionally cool person. So it's not like I feel like I'm like, oh, I can make this great content and people can will come to it. And like the idea of vlogging ever was probably like the scariest. Like I mean, not even like appealing to me because of the terror. Um, <laughs> Amazing. I will just preface all of my content with the fact that like I am not a very cool person, but I really like. <laughs> that, that is the motivator. The cool thing about grad school, and like I don't know about you, but like being super into science is is cool. And so part of me is like I am somewhat living my best life in grad school because outside of grad school, I feel like I have a 25 year old that doesn't like get it. I'm like you guys like they trendy stuff and clothes and music, and I'm like I do psychology and I have these new notebooks. Do you want to see my new notebooks? Like I'm like, I can tell you about academic Twitter. Do you want to know the drama on Did you see Twitter? Yeah, the slug. Like, <laughs> oh my God. So same. I don't know if I would say like, oh I'm not cool. I mean I don't think that I'm cool, but it's like I just genuinely can't be anything but kind of myself. I have a really hard time putting on a face or I mean not that like being professional is me not being myself, but I like to just be who I am. And it's really hard to be now in my mid 20s. I'm like, what, a couple months into my mid 20s. I've, you know, being in my early 20s in grad school was hard because people were older than me. And I was trying to figure out how to be in my 20s and how to relate to people older than me. And they were into different things. You know, I feel like a big way in college that I like got to know people is like silly as this sounds to maybe other people. But like, when you meet somebody, you like follow them on social media, like Instagram or Twitter or Snapchat. And sometimes that was like a good ease into like, oh, you send each other a couple snaps or like, oh, you like their stuff or you comment. And then next time you see them in person, you can bring up that thing that you saw or that you liked that they shared or whatever. And it's like a easy way to start conversation. And so when I got to grad school and like there was not a lot of people on social media or they weren't interacting with it the same way as me, I very much was like, I don't know how to relate to people as well. Like 
I didn't know anybody who was married until I got to grad school. I didn't know anybody with a baby that was around my time of life who was until I got to grad school. Like it was all a huge change. Yeah, I had a very similar experience in that I played a sport through high school and college. So I never made friends like outside of my team. Like I made friends through my team and through my sport and through like that was like in my public high school, I was definitely not cool. Um, I was so, yeah. So I was very co- like not comfortable. I don't know how to say it exactly, but like I understood that system. And then I was coming to grad school. And I was like, oh no. So I'm going to have to Your like system. make friends about being on a team. Yeah. And- without like having another identity attached of like the girl that did film or like the girl yeah. really into research as an undergrad. Like, yeah. And like, what will we even talk about? Or, you know, yeah. <laughs> what does this look like? So it's been really rewarding to me to find amazing friends in grad school and just sort of like honestly have that maybe experience that people like typically have in high school of finding your people because I didn't feel like I had that in high school because it was so focused on my sport and like get a scholarship and things and then college was like play your sport and then you know figure out grad school and stuff so I feel like now I'm having this like more figure yourself out socially time almost um like delayed definitely well and and same but for sort of different reasons I mean I was on a volleyball team that was like a travel team and those were like my girls and like at my high school I had like a couple of really good people around me and I'm in touch with some of them but it wasn't like we were like a group right like some people Mm -hmm. like have that group from high school and like that was it and they're all still besties like I can think of multiple people from my high school who are like still like living that and I think that that's amazing like I wish I found that like group in high school and I have two people I stay in regular contact with and then in college I did kind of find a group but I just like after college we all kind of drifted a little bit and like we catch up when we can and I had a you know a failed stint in a sorority that just like I didn't make a single friend and it was really really painful and awful and not the time to even talk about it here but I was always focused on a different thing so in high school I was sort of just like dealing with mental health things in college I was so like I'm gonna make something of myself so I'm gonna go to med school and then I almost passed out watching a nerve block and I was like, I'm not going to med school. I'm going to go to grad school. And I was just so focused, right? I was like president of Psychi. And like, that was my brand was like focused and driven. And like, that was great. And it benefited me. But also I, I 100% missed out on a ton in college and I don't regret it. And I don't really feel that much FOMO, but I do recognize that my experience was super different. Like I hear people say to me like, wow, like it's amazing what you do. And I wish I was in grad school and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, but you know what? I wish that I went out on some Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I didn't, I didn't go to a bar until I had an ID. Like I actually followed that law, which like who, no one else did. Like everyone had a fake. I didn't drink until I was, I, okay. So I drank in high school and then I got in trouble and I got scared because I don't like being in trouble at all. I'm, I'm not yeah. good at being in trouble. So then I got scared for a few years and then I didn't drink until the end of college. In the time when I wasn't drinking though, I did get a fake ID because I love music mm. and I wanted to be able to, and I, and I, had like the speech prepared for if, if I was trying if I was like getting in trouble and I was like listen I don't even drink man I just like I just listen to the music yeah. <laughs> I'm the music so actually I think what we're learning is that you were cooler than me in college <laughs> but it was actually a huge reason why I didn't go well in my sorority like these girls weren't mean I just didn't do things that they were doing you know I didn't have a lot of girls at least like where I was living that were like pre-med so it wasn't like we were studying for similar classes together because that's a, a big way that people bond and I did have friends from classes but like we were so busy you know so for me when I got to grad school I was like I'm so excited that everyone around me is basically excited about the same thing we want a good career where we care about school and then it was still like oh 
I still don't know how to relate people because it was like it flipped. It was like I could relate to people, but no one was doing the same thing as me, but one or two people. And then suddenly everyone was doing the same thing, but I couldn't relate to them because I didn't know how to. So it was a really hard transition that I truly, like I really only feel like I'm on the other side of as of like six months ago. I agree. I don't want to come out here and be like, now that I'm a fourth year, everything's better. Like this is fresh that I am feeling confident and comfortable in any social area. And mostly because I made that happen, not because it just happened to me. Yeah. And going to the like making it happen thing, I don't know how much of it is like feeling confidence versus just really convincing myself that, okay, well, you have to fake it and feel confident or like fake it to feel confident. Both are valid. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Either way works. Yeah. And so as we are wrapping up here at the end, you know, we already gave some advice for like, what you would say to somebody who wants to get into SciComm. But I guess like maybe even more broad advice because we've covered so many areas today. So rather than like giving advice on SciComm, I'm curious from you, Ryan Lynn Brown, what advice would you give somebody in grad school struggling right now? What would you tell first year you? I mean, man, my four things probably now are like finding your people and setting your boundaries. Finding my people I didn't know was going to happen and that made a huge difference. Setting my boundaries I didn't do until later and that made a huge difference. I think just knowing that everyone else is also struggling and that's again why I love academic Twitter and I love your podcast and I think it's really important what you're doing here because we don't know how much everyone else is struggling. We don't know what's normal. We don't know if we're the only ones dealing with something and the truth is in graduate school we get so isolated. And so knowing that it's not only you being the one isolated, it's not only you struggling, feeling like you're not good enough. I think connecting with a broader community, of course, if there's mental health stuff going on, seeing a therapist has been incredible for grad school. Yeah. I highly recommend medication, all of those things, right? But on top of that, within your program, I think being clear with, like I said, like I knew my dad was going to die. So I was really clear with my advisor and the people in my program that this was something that I was anticipating and like kind of stressed about, right? And not going Uh, to apologize for when it came to be. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And because that made the space for me to be able to say to people, I'm struggling today because of this, right? And that was a thing that I really had to be able to say it a lot of times because what we study is really close to what my, my experience has been. So there have definitely been times where we've been in grant meetings and I've just had to leave the room because it's just, it's just too much. So right. Real. So yeah. yeah. Finding grace with yourself. I think I didn't have any until recently. That's been a big struggle, I think for me, but yeah. What self-care stuff would you recommend? Oh, good question. Yeah. I And, and this is actually interesting as you ask about self-care, like this covers so many bases, right? Yeah. Like for me, I'm yeah. totally on the same page about like healthy boundaries was huge for me. I've talked before about the fact that I didn't have any hobbies until I got to grad school. Part of that was also just yeah. like in college, you almost don't need any hobbies because your life is busy and college kind of provides stuff to do. So it was sort of just because of that. But I feel like self-care for me was like a big realization that I think happened this year is that everyone's self-care looks different. Like I hate taking a bath. I just do. I don't like bath bombs. I think they make me sticky. I don't like sitting in a hot pond of my own filth. It's just like me. I also, and this is strange, but like when you're in water, like a bath, I almost get seasick because of the way that like the water, I don't know, the buoyancy of, I don't do water science, but I'm not going to recommend a bath to you. Right. Right. So like, I don't like not a one size fits all thing. And so it's like, I don't want to feel bad by like the self-care bath aesthetic that I don't get to participate in. I know that sounds silly, but I think if you are trying self-care things that don't work, it's not you. It just isn't your, like, that's just not your thing, right? I mean, I don't 
I don't know if I can say this as an academic. I don't like to read for pleasure. I really want to like to read for pleasure. Oh, I know. Hot controversial. Take. That was going to be my next. That was going to be my next piece of advice. <gasps> to read for pleasure. Say, I was going to say that I started a young adult fiction book club that's only for not young adults. Oh my god! This year, and so I've read a young adult fantasy fiction book every month of this year, oh and it's been the best addition to my life See? because I just felt like I'm in all of these different worlds, and and it's so nice in pandemic time just to be in a different world yeah. and like experience the world building. Also, the type of writing is so different and. Again, we we are trained in such a specific type of writing that it makes me just be inspired by these authors. <laughs> yeah, see, this is a great example. Here, when I was a kid, I really liked reading. I was like, I could just read any book and get through it. And I really, so far, have still just been totally tainted by like academic reading and reading for school that I haven't been able to get back into pleasure reading. And so I actually find reading to be very stressful. Like when I pick up a book my head starts to hurt a little bit. I just can't relax with it. But I have really gotten into like fantasy TV shows or like really getting the escape more visually well, and like with audio. Yeah. So like, I'm really into like, I mean, I'm into a lot of things. I've talked about this on the podcast. But recently, I started Poldark, which is like set in the 1700s. And it's like a guy who was in the American Revolution on the British side and lost. And then it's, it's basically like Downton Abbey was set in the 1700s. And I'm so into that. Like, I could just get lost in that for hours. Whereas some people watch a screen for a couple hours and they're burnt out. They're like, I can't watch a TV show. I need to pick up a book. So yeah, everything looks different. And this just reminded me, I think that this is a great way to end the episode. I had a very hot take on Twitter yesterday that you Did. disagreed with. And then I think I think you won the the hot take award though. I think I think you were I think your hot take won. Okay, I didn't really mean for it to. It was one of those things where I was like, oh, I was just kind of messing around, you know, I was kind of like, oh, this is funny. Um, but I actually in the middle of this interview, I had to silence my phone because that tweet is like blowing up. But basically the hot take was which Harry Potter book is your favorite and why is it Prisoner of Azkaban? And I had a lot of people disagreeing, right? So like some people said Chamber of Secrets. I don't even think I replied to that one. I was like, I'm not putting attention on that. <laughs> like, in my opinion, yeah. that was like, okay, my opinion of Chamber of Secrets was like, that was not the accident book, but that was the book that like, by the end, she was like, how do I tie in this book that had no meaning to plot or character development? I know the diaries of Horcrux. And so like, I just, whatever. And then a couple of people were like, I like the sports book, which is Goblet of Fire. And I'm like, okay, the sports book was, this series is getting popular and I want more boys to read it. Let me write a sports book. Again, I have really hot takes on this, but it's fine. <laughs> but then you said that your favorite was Order of the Phoenix. Yes. And I always view Order of the Phoenix as the book I almost could not get through because the beginning, and actually Potterless had the same opinion on this. The beginning is just Harry complaining for eight chapters and like a bunch of cleaning. And I, because of that, I just can't get past it. It's just not number one for me. I respect your opinion. Thank you. And I respect <laughs> yours. And like, here's the thing, Prisoner of Azkaban does not have the necessarily the best plot, right? I actually think plot-wise, like development of like the story-wise, it's Half-Blood Prince, mm -hmm. in my mind. The last two books just can't be my favorite for some reason. Order of the Phoenix was the one I read as a kid so many times that it fell apart and I had to get a new one. Oh, so that's how, I, that's how I say it. Like it literally fell apart and I, I had that. to get a new one. I mean, that's the kind of life I'm and, trying to live. Yeah, I mean, and so I, I also think it's funny that I study grief now too, because I think it, like the serious death in that episode <laughs> or in that book, like I remember that being very impactful and like I remember needing to like reread that like all of the Harry serious stuff too so um I think that's honestly a huge part of it is that makes that. 
so that is so cool yeah. like what a cool connection with what you do now well I started to I was like trying to type that out on Twitter yesterday I was like this is too much I don't know how to explain that <laughs> said it out loud because it sounds all of a sudden I was like that is even cooler because he falls behind the curtain right oh. and that that moment to me as a kid even was like we've got to find him yeah right I mean yeah I mean I'll say like Although the movie's really butchered, Order of the Phoenix, the one thing, his falling back like it was exactly how I pictured it. And the whole like Harry screaming quietly thing ends me. Yeah. And I'll always be mad at the sixth movie for cutting out all of the interesting behind the scenes about Voldemort. And but I feel similar, like the last couple books of any series, like I almost can't even count in a favorite because if they do it well, it's going to be my favorite. And if they wrap up the story poorly, I'm going to hate the book. So like it either falls into my favorite or least favorite for end of series novels. So I get that for six and seven. I definitely agree about Prisoner of Azkaban though. I think it was an incredible book. I think I just was so frustrated that we didn't get all of the information about like the Marauders map and the movie. There was so much about the nicknames and all of that was that that was just so heartbreaking to me because I was like the people who watch the movies don't even know yeah. all of the and that was I think that was the most again like the dad connection I don't know the, <laughs> I've always had that like yeah. uh, like those people who we've lost connection like how were their interactions in that time before and it's so fascinating to me like all of those all the flashbacks and things like that so yeah. I lose that from the I think it's like the purity of three that makes it number one for me, right? Where like six is like so interesting, but it's quite dark. And so I think that while I find that to be like one of the most interesting in terms of like enjoyment, like I read back three, which is a a little bit more digestible as someone who doesn't like to pleasure read as much as I wish I did. Um, But also it's just, it's so pure. Like it's just so, it is still that like pre-Voldemort coming back feeling yeah it's like so sentimental you know what I mean I don't know okay I did I was gonna say I did want to talk to you about this so my one of my biggest I wanted to know what you thought about Lupin as a werewolf in the third book versus the movie like what did you think he was gonna look like versus what he looked like (sighs) I mean okay in the movies and I know this was not what your tweet was about but this is what I got stuck oh my god I'm so honestly I have to say I'm so glad that you've asked this question it's not a hot (laughs) take that I have but suddenly I'm feeling like I have a lot of feelings about it I feel like in the movies okay did you oh god did you um (laughs) Narnia growing up yeah okay and you know how the guy Mr. Tomnin or whatever his name was was like a goat man with like the weird backwards feet okay so Lupin in the movies looked like him but like malnourished like he looked like a malnourished goat dog he did not look correct and it bothered me the entire (laughs) movie and and then and when I read the book again I that that, that's still what I see so I think Lupin's like werewolf character also I mean I also okay I feel like the real letdown of movie three was the injustice done to the Shrieking Shack. And that whole storyline of like Lupin being there and like, God, tugging my heartstrings harder, will you? Like, oh man. I mean, that just like ate me. So so anyways, we've gone on a Harry Potter tangent. This is a pro Harry Potter podcast, but it's not a Harry Potter podcast. Um, I could never host one of those because again, the reading for pleasure thing. I don't know. Maybe I'll change. I want to be different. I want to be. You don't have to change though. You don't. You know, and that's to. exactly the point. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming and chatting with me today. Everyone listening, everything's going to be plugged below for her accounts. And I think you should give it a follow, especially if you're not in our area of research. I mean, not to say I'm a little biased. I think it's super interesting, but I do want to remind listeners again about where they can find you online. And so where can they find you? Where can they connect with you? Where 
are you? Yeah. So on Twitter, Instagram, and on YouTube, it's at Ryan Science. So R-Y-A-N-S-S-C-I-E-N-C-E. And then also on Twitter, my personal account is at Ryan Lynn Brown. So at R-Y-A-N-L-I-N-N-B-R-O-W-N. Perfect. Well, yay. Amazing. I'm so glad we made this episode happen. Part of me feels like half the stuff we talked about at the beginning that we were like, okay, we got to start recording now. We got to like, you'll probably come on. We'll have to just do like, I don't know, a day in the life or something. Because I feel like all of those tangents, they need their moment to shine. Yeah, this was a blast. So thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Thank you so much for being on here. And listeners, I will catch you next time. All right, all right, it's happening again. Let's do a quick pause here for a trailer for the science comedy podcast, Petri Dish. Ich bin ein science, science, cannabinoids, genetics, coronavirus, dogs. This is Petri Dish. Science, science. We're a science podcast exploring complex subjects with clarity and evil humor. Join the scientific revolution. Join Petri Dish, dropping every Monday on anchor.fm slash Petri Dish. Are you following the podcast on social media? You should be. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Dear Grad Student, on Instagram at Dear Grad Student Pod, and on YouTube by searching Dear Grad Student Podcast. If you want to connect with me online, you can find me on Twitter at Alana underscore Gloger. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore G-L-O-G-E-R. Reminder that you can find the link for free grocery delivery on orders over $35 in the show notes for Instacart. And if you like what you heard today, spread the word about the show. If everyone just told one person, we would double in a day. I think that's how math works. Also, if you can, please rate and leave a review for Dear Grad Student on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your other favorite shows. And reminder that all resources and links mentioned in today's episode can be found in the description. And until next time, warmest regards, best wishes, sincerely, Alana.